Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in chapter 5 and verse 17 as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26 is our passage this morning, and that passage can be found on page 861 if you are using a church Bible, page 861. Luke chapter 5 and verse 17. And before we look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we're so grateful that we can come together and worship you and, and to sing songs of praise and to be together and, and now hear from your word. And we ask, God, that you would show us wonderful things in it. We pray for a clarity and an accuracy of understanding. God, would you please convict us of, of sin, even the things that we may have been ignoring for quite some time. Would you open our eyes to that? And more so, convict us of your love for us and how much better your love is than, than anything else that the world has to offer. By the Holy Spirit, God, would you please bring us close to you and help us to enjoy all that you are for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Jesus begins his public ministry in a region called Galilee. This is an area by the sea which is really away from the large city, away from Jerusalem, and away from all the influential major movers of the day. Jesus' home base thus far has been this little fishing village in Capernaum. If you've ever been to Capernaum, you can come to the synagogue there. Uh, they built some new stuff on top of the old stuff, but even then the footprint is smaller than this room that we have here. And the shore to the Sea of Galilee would be across the street before you hit Coco Marina. Capernaum is a very little, little village, and there is still no major city there. It's still far from the movers and shakers in Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins his public ministry really in a very insignificant place. But by the time we get to our text, we have crowds of people growing, and they are coming from all over the area to hear the words that would come out of Jesus' mouth and to see his authority in the works that he is doing. Because no matter how far out in the boonies you begin, what Jesus is now doing is altogether astounding. And these things are not being accomplished in a vacuum. Word spreads quickly even without social media. The word of God is being preached with authority. Prophecy is being fulfilled. The sick are being healed. Demons are cast out. The fish of the sea are jumping into fishermen's nets. And most recently, an incurable leper on the outskirts of society, deformed and disfigured, body mangled. This very same man is now made clean and his skin brand new in a moment because Jesus touches him, and pronounces him clean. This new celebrity is touching the untouchable, and he has a power to make even the filthiest and most broken man whole again. And so we have authority in Jesus' words and his actions, and that is coupled with a heart of deep compassion for even those people who most of us would try to avoid. Jesus brings even those ones near to himself. And it's in our text this morning that we have another healing miracle, which again points to a power that Jesus possesses. 
which is a power that is actually much, much deeper than merely the physical. But first, let's look at the setting for this miracle in verse 17, the context for this healing. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. This is the scene and the setting of Jesus' next miracle in the book of Luke. We have Jesus inside of a house teaching. This is someone's home. And Jesus didn't teach only in the synagogues and on the Sabbath and from behind pulpits. Jesus taught in homes and on beaches and in boats and next to wells. Jesus taught pretty much wherever he went. And if you remember, from the moment Jesus opens his mouth and begins to preach, the people are utterly astonished because he teaches with authority and power and gravity and weight unlike the guys we normally hear. The crowds are frequently being amazed because of that distinction that Jesus is not like any of the religious leaders of the day. And here it is that Jesus' direct audience within this house are the religious leaders of the day. The ones whom Jesus has been regularly outshining in his preaching, they have front row seats to Jesus' preaching. Now, this is awkward. And this isn't just a few of them. There are Pharisees and teachers of the law, and they come from every village of Galilee and Judea and all the way from Jerusalem. Every village of Galilee around that lake means every village in the immediate surrounding area are sending their religious leaders into this room. Judea is a region much further south. The religious leaders have come from up there as well, down there as well. And Jerusalem is in Judea. This is where the temple is at. This is about an 80-mile journey by foot. I mean, these are the big wigs. These are representatives of the spiritual leadership of the entire nation, and they are in this very room, and there's no way that these religious gurus are going to travel 80-plus miles to Galilee unless they heard about something that they need to check out. And here they are, listening with their very own ears, Jesus teach, and they are seeing with their very own eyes Him healing people in the power of God. But what we have here is that instead of sitting at Jesus' feet to learn from him and confess his identity and to praise God for his appearing, instead of falling on their hands and knees like others already have in the book of Luke, this committee is here to scrutinize him. This is not a group of Jesus fans. This is a group of Jesus critics. And that is often the case wherever the word of God is being preached, that some are humbly there to come under the authority of the Lord, and others are there to be altogether critical and unmoving in their hearts. This group is the unmoving in their hearts because it is that they feel threatened by Jesus. If Jesus is what all signs are pointing to him being, that he is the coming one, then we lose our influence. We lose our authority. We lose our spotlight. We lose prestige. We lose status as the gurus. We lose popularity. We lose power. In short, we lose our lives. And to this carpenter guy, Jesus, doesn't Jesus call Galilean fishermen to follow him? Doesn't he touch filthy lepers and lay hands on the sick? We would never do anything like that. We are way too spiritual, much too holy. 
way too clean to do the kinds of stuff that he is doing. And so this Jesus right here is a threat to our very way of living. He is altogether different than we are. And so this is not an impartial group of truth seekers. This is a delegation of those who want to discredit Jesus in any way that they can so that they could keep their lot in life. And therefore, the atmosphere is tense. It's charged. It is awkward. And it's very dramatic. There's no mention of humility or recognition of what Jesus is undeniably doing even as he is healing people in the power of God right before their faces as they sit front row. The very spiritual people who should most recognize the work of God, the very ones who should have their arms wide open, they refuse to do so. This is a setting for our miracle this morning. This is a scene. Look what happens next in verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. With a paralyzed man in desperate need before Jesus, Jesus is making it clear that forgiveness of sins is much more important than being able to walk again. And that the soul is far more weighty than the physical body that lasts just this one lifetime. That your standing in eternity is much more important than your standing on earth, even if you can't stand up at all. Forgiveness of sins is what people need the most. And what we have in these verses is another portrait of faith. That just like the leper in the previous passage who had to overcome obstacles and self-pity and social stigma and the judging stares of all of those who saw him come into their city, this paralyzed man and his friends do exhibit an extraordinary level of faith. The book of Mark lets us know that there are four friends who are carrying this man. And so he has that kind of paralysis that it would take more than two of them. This is not a condition where you could carry the man with one of his arms around each of his friend's neck and kind of limp along. This is a kind of paralysis that requires a stretcher, a bed mat, as if you were carrying a dead, limp body. But they believe that Jesus can help them even with their friend in this kind of condition. And coming near to that house, they would have seen it overflowing with people through the doors, looking into the window, spilling out into the streets. There is no way to penetrate this crowd. And if their faith were a little bit weaker, they might have took their friend right back home and said, look, man, we tried our best. This is impossible. I mean, you saw it. Maybe we can try on another day. But coming this close to Jesus and looking at their friend's condition and knowing the power and compassion of Jesus, they knew that we have to find a way to get these two together as soon as possible. We can't quit just because it's hard. And if we can't get through the crowd, perhaps maybe we can go above the crowd. And this is a faith that has quite a bit of ingenuity and perseverance. And this is a faith that has quite a bit of even bold recklessness. 
This is what you call genuine faith. How do we know when faith is genuine? By the pains and efforts and perseverance of it. By the work of such faith, we know what that faith is made of. Brothers and sisters, we must never be deceived into thinking that there is a saving faith that is without works, that is without effort, that is without pains, that busts through troubles and overcomes obstacles. Faith works, and it works very hard. And so this group begins to dig through the roof of that house. I mean, what in the world? This is not even their own roof. But their belief in Jesus' ability to help their friend is such that we'll break through someone else's roof to do it. And it's not like they have a shop vac. And this is filthy residue falling on Jesus upon that religious entourage that came all the way from Jerusalem. This is a dirty mess. And I'm sure that many people are thinking in their minds, how dare these guys do what they're doing? But that still doesn't stop them because we need to get our needy friend to Jesus by any means necessary. We can't care what people think. We can't consider the financial cost as being too high. We can't be worried about the religious gurus because we have just but one purpose, and that is to bring our friend in dire need to Jesus because he is the only one who can help him. This is the portrait of faith in the power of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of what every Christian tries to do in evangelism and in ministry that we need to bring those we know close to him by any means necessary. And this is also a picture of what we need to do in our own relationship with Jesus. If we want to be close to God, we can be. Where there is a will, there is always a way. If there is any reason why we are not close to God, it is because we frankly do not want to be close to him. Because if we really did, we would really try and break through barriers because we believe Jesus is the only answer to everything that I need. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He writes this. Why is it that so many people take no pains in religion? How is it that they can never find time for praying, Bible reading, and hearing the gospel? What is the secret of their continual string of excuses for neglecting means of grace? How is it that the very same men or people who are full of zeal about money, business, pleasure, or politics will take no trouble about their souls? The answer to these questions is short and simple. These people are not in earnest about salvation. They have no sense of their spiritual disease. They have no consciousness of requiring a spiritual physician. They do not feel that their souls are in danger of eternal damnation. They see no use in taking trouble about religion. In darkness like this, thousands live and die. Happy indeed are those who have found out their peril, their condition, and count all things lost if they may only win Christ and be found in him. Where are we at, brothers and sisters? Are we full of zeal about anything and everything except that which can save our souls? Do we look like these friends here, clawing our way through the crowd, digging our way through roofs so that we might get that much closer to Jesus Christ? Or is our faith the kind which is without works, 
and takes no pains and requires no efforts, which will prove when all is said and done to be false. We have to answer these questions for ourselves. When we see faith, <clears throat> like what we see in our text, we have to look into that mirror and see if that is true in our hearts as well. And so there is a strength of faith and a desperation of faith, and this is happening in the most critical audience of religious representations of the entire nation. Now, Jesus, at this moment and with this scene, he could have taken the opportunity to show his critics. You guys have seen some minor healings today. You guys have heard about a leper being made clean, but you didn't get to see all that skin growing back. You didn't see the legions vanishing. You didn't see the open sores closing. You didn't get to see that with your very own eyes. But look at what we have here. A paralytic coming through the roof, and now I can prove myself to you all. This is my time to shine in front of my worst critics. Sha-la-la-la-la, let's put on a show. I will blow your socks off with this healing. Jesus could have done that, but he doesn't do that. What he does instead to make a point to all who are in that room and looking inside that room from outside the house to make a point to the paralytic and his friends and to us. Bodily paralysis is not the main issue I have come to solve. Sin is the main issue I have come to solve. Forgiveness of sins is the main reason why I am here. And the human dilemma of living apart from God because of that distance sin has created is the reason why I have been sent. And perceiving this genuine faith in his own ability to help the most needy, Jesus says this very clearly to this man in dire need and to all of us who can hear, your sins are forgiven you. Our deepest need, brothers and sisters, is to be forgiven of our sins. You could be blind. You could be a leper. You could be paralyzed from the neck down. You could be broke. But even then, your greatest need is not a new set of legs or vision or skin that can feel or more cash in your pocket. Humanity's greatest need is to be forgiven of our sinfulness and be brought into a right relationship with a holy God who we have offended with our very lives. And we cannot be brought back into that relationship unless the sin that has separated us from knowing and enjoying God has been dealt with. This is the most important thing that could happen to any of us. And so Jesus is very clear in this very moment that this man's main issue is not paralysis, but it is sin that the forgiveness of it is much more important than being able to walk again, that his soul is far more weighty than the physical body that lasts just this one lifetime, and that our standing in eternity is more important than our standing on this earth, even if we cannot stand up at all. Now, we are living in a day and an age, especially in the last couple of years, where everyone is so concerned about the body and physical health and yet so ignoring of their own souls. And holding on to this belief, whether they acknowledge it or not, that as long as you're healthy and physically safe, almost nothing else really matters. 
Listen to Eric Alexander, Scottish preacher, said this long before COVID. A healthy body, which is housing a sick soul, is not something to be coveted. And there are many sick bodies that have housed souls that were glowing with the glory of God and the reality of fellowship with Him. And the real question is, where do I see my real need? You know, it may be that God in His providence within this very fallen world is giving to us a window of opportunity and a time period of great discomfort so that He might reveal what is in, within our own hearts to reveal to us if we value the physical body at the detriment to our souls, or if we value a particular political viewpoint at the detriment of gathering with the church, or if we are quicker to read all the COVID talking points every morning and bolster our own cognitive bias and settle into our own echo chambers more than we rush to turn to the Word of God. What has this window revealed to you in the last year and a half about what it is that you think you need most. Is it still Jesus? Is he the one you are desperate for? Or are you desperate for something else? Now, I don't want to press into this dichotomy of body and soul too much as if the body is unimportant and we can be separated into parts. We should absolutely take care of our bodies, but never, ever to the neglect of our souls. Look at your Savior who neglected his body for the sake of our souls. Look at the missionaries all over the world that sacrificed their bodies for the sake of hundreds of thousands of souls so that the sweetest words any sinful person could ever hear from Jesus would be broadcast, your sins are forgiven you. But not everyone thinks these words are very sweet. Look at verse 21 to see the reaction from Jesus' critics. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. At this point in this scene, with the desperate and believing ones coming through that roof, and the critics and the unbelieving ones in the front row, with all who hear Jesus declaring his own ability to forgive sin, the audience there and the audience here, we are left with just two options about Jesus. He is either able to forgive sins, like only God can forgive sins, or Jesus is speaking blasphemy. It is one or it is the other. There is no middle ground. Jesus is either God or he is a heretic. He should either be worshipped or he should be stoned to death. 
We can't have this moral example Jesus or social reformer Jesus or good leader healer Jesus or fine religious person Jesus, just not deity. No, Jesus is either Lord or he is fake. And the religious leaders in this room are right in this way, that no one can forgive sins but God alone. No one can. And that is because our sins are primarily against God before they are against anyone else. You know, oftentimes we view sin as only against each other. Well, as long as I don't hurt anybody, it's not sin. And that if I get mad and yell at the kids, well, I'm just sinning against them. Or if, or if I look at pornography and my spouse doesn't know it, well, she doesn't know it. So I'm not hurting anybody. David, who committed adultery and murder, in Psalm 51, he says, against you, that's God. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, David did a lot of evil in a lot of people's sight. David sinned against a friend. He took a woman. He sinned against a lot of people. But his actions primarily were an offense against God first and foremost. His sin is ultimately committed before God's holy eyes. And so when you lose your temper against somebody, yes, that person has to forgive you. But that's done before God, and he must forgive you. When you have that bitterness inside of you that you just replay events over and over and over, even though no one knows it, I bet you people can feel it. But that's against God. When you're filled with greed or lust or taking advantage of someone or speaking malicious gossip, that is sin against people, no doubt, absolutely. But prior to that, that is directed against God himself. And so whether people forgive you or not, what we most need is ultimate forgiveness, which only God can give. And the only one who can grant that kind of forgiveness is God himself. And so these religious leaders, they're correct in their theology. No one can forgive sins except God alone because all of our sins are against God first and foremost. But they are utterly wrong in the application of that theology. Because Jesus Christ has been proving himself to be God. Bob Moorfield read this morning about prophecy being fulfilled and the sick being healed. Demons are being cast out. The word of God is coming to fruition. The fish of the sea obey their creator. And even the leper, the incurable, is made clean in a moment. These are undeniable instances and expressions of Jesus' own identity. And rather than contemplating, looking at all that is happening, that perhaps, maybe, God is visiting us in this very moment because now the same Jesus who is doing all of those things is speaking about the forgiveness which only God can bring. The forgiveness which we each and all need, perhaps this is the time we have all been waiting for. Rather than this group of religious gurus even considering this as a possibility, they quickly jump to the accusation of blasphemy, which is punishable by the death penalty in Leviticus 24, 16. We know what they want to do. They want Jesus out of their lives. But calling Jesus a blasphemer is really the worst kind of blasphemy that one can commit. And if there's anyone in this room who deserves a death penalty, it is not Jesus, but the ones pointing their long fingers at Jesus. And yet here we see the grace of Jesus yet again. That even again, he's going to offer these religious authorities yet another proof because he knows their thoughts. 
Why do you question in your hearts? It's like he's appealing to the ones who hate him. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Both sentences are easy to say. But you can't verify if someone's sins have been forgiven in this life. The non-believer and the believer, they look exactly the same on the outside. But when you tell someone to rise and walk, the authority of that declaration can be easily tested in this very moment. And if Jesus says, rise and walk, and the guy doesn't get up and rise and walk, then Jesus' word really has no power. You can't fake that. But if this man does rise and does walk, then there is authority in Jesus' words, and that is verifiable, and his power is now undeniable, which is exactly what this paralyzed man does in a moment. It's not a long process with all these chants. This is just like the leper. Boom. And the mat which used to carry the man, the man is now carrying, and he obeys Jesus' command to go home. Can you imagine the feeling in this room? If you thought it was awkward in the beginning, it's super awkward right now. This limp and lame guy comes through the roof on a mat, and now he's walking out the front door with a mat under his arms. Shouldn't the religious leaders at this point be like Peter in that boat, when all the fish threaten to sink it, falling on their faces, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord, Luke 5, 8. But they don't do that. No matter what proof Jesus will give to him, give to them, their hearts don't want him because they want to keep living their lives the way they want to live them. You know, I often hear from unbelievers, some in my own family, people I love, if I could just see a miracle, then I would believe. Couldn't be further from the truth. The religious leadership in this room saw miracle after miracle, and that never led them to believe. A paralyzed man, limp and almost dead, picks up his mat and walks out the door and the most religious people of the day still refuse to confess Jesus' identity because they want zero life change. They don't want Jesus. No matter what kind of proof he gives, our hearts precede our minds, brothers and sisters. And if our hearts won't receive Christ, our minds never will. Now, everyone else is amazed in this room. They're shocked but they're not on their hands and knees. And the danger for us, brothers and sisters, is that we can hear the word of God and declare and hear declare the glory of God week in and week out, and we can still refuse to be changed. We can be amazed. Wow, Jesus really did that? That's super cool. And that's it. The religious leaders won't acknowledge Jesus for who he is. The crowds are willing to be amazed, but they're not filled with humility or repentance because of what they've seen. Because standing in awe of a miracle is not the same thing as knowing God. And seeing something amazing and calling it amazing is not the same thing as loving God. Now, as we come to the Lord's table on the second Sunday of the month, if we were to really ask the question, which is easier, to make a paralyzed man walk or for God to forgive us of our sins? It's much easier for Jesus to make the paralyzed walk and the filthy leper clean and the sick well. He just says it and it's done. And if these were our main issues, then Jesus would have never had to die at all. He could have never died. He could have been healing for centuries. But he loves us 
much more strongly than that. And our Savior, full of compassion and love, can look at a limp, paralyzed man full in his face and feel his pain and know that your ultimate need is really forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus is not satisfied looking at us and letting our bodies be well and our souls still perish. He knows our real need is much deeper than what is on the surface. And there is only one way for the sin we have committed against him to be finally dealt with and to be finally forgiven. And that is Jesus walking that road to Calvary and dying upon the cross in the sinner's place and as sin itself. So that the wrath of God against our iniquities could be completely extinguished upon the body of Jesus. God can't just forgive you and sweep everything under the rug. He's too holy. He's too righteous. Sin must be punished. And it's punished upon Jesus instead of us. He pays our debt in full. And it's accepted by God the Father, which is proven in his resurrection from the grave. This is vindication. So that he can utter those sweet words to his people who will believe your sins are forgiven you. All of them even the ones no one knows about. You know, when we come to this table, the bread is the body of Christ. All of Jesus is given to us. The cup represents his blood, which is shed to wash away even our worst sins. And when we eat of it and drink of it together as a family, this body and this blood binds us to one another, and it binds us to Jesus Christ himself. And this is a means of grace commanded by the scriptures by which his people can come once again to meditate on this gospel. And we meditate again as if it were the first time. How do we know that the love of Christ has really gotten deep down into our hearts and our minds? You think about the leper, all skin new. You think about this paralytic who's walking around. You think the first thing he does is get mad at a guy for taking his parking space? Or is muttering stuff when he goes to Costco and bacon's 20 bucks? You think he's mad because his food came out cold? No way, not on this day at least. I mean, the best thing that could ever happen to him just happened to him. Almost nothing else could change that. And when we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded again that the best thing that could ever happen has happened for us. That at Jesus, at great cost to himself, brings us near to himself by washing away all of our sins with his body and with his blood. And we know we're getting it when we walk out these doors and we don't sweat the small stuff. That we're walking and leaping and praising God because of what he has done for us. This table is to bring us back to that very same place and give to us this very same perspective. We were lost, but now we are found. We were guilty, and yet we've been acquitted. We were far from God, and now we are brought near because of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your great love and your amazing grace that you would send your precious, beloved Son, eternal, for us, that you seek out the lost, you, you touch the filthy, you make 
the, those paralyzed with sin able again? Father, we thank you for the love which we have never earned, nor would we ever deserve. We thank you for pouring out your love upon us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, for all of us in this room and our church family, that you would bring us back to that very first time we knew that we were forgiven. Would you fill us with that initial joy and lasting joy that would make us live our lives with perspective and power? Would you give us that kind of faith that works and tries as hard as we can to bring others close to you? Would you enable us, God? Would you help us, God, to understand how much joy there is to be found in you so that we might live all our days with all our might unto you? We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.